What is going on, guys? I want to welcome in everybody into our first collab. Natalia, Wonder Woman of Aviation podcast. Over there, the other half of Extreme Flight. Sean Starker here, you know, level aviation. And I'm far from having the autopilot on because we're working today. Why are we working? You see who's with us. You see this amazing guest that we have. And coming to us from inside the ambulance. This is so exciting. I I didn't know this was going to happen. I am so stoked to talk about this ambulance. I'm stoked to talk to Eric Tucker. So welcome in, Eric. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here, guys. So, Tucker, I'm going to start off really, really quick because my podcast is universal and so is Sean's. So for those that don't know the Tucker name and what it stands for, how would you describe the Tucker family name? It's like in one adjective. Oh, man, that's a good question. I wish I had my kids here to to chime in on that one. Oh, I bet they have some really good ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think the... um, I think aviation is, um, you know, it's this, it's this really amazing thing that we can do so many fun things with, right? And just have like this fantastic aerial experiences. But I think that like what we try and do is always try and like bring it back to like professionalism and what is sort of like the right thing to do. How do you manage and mitigate risk? Um, my grandfather was an aviation attorney as well as a pilot. Um, and then my dad, the, the air show pilot, obviously. And so, um, so I think it gets down to that. It's like, you know, how do you do this really, really rad uh, thing in a responsible way where you're mitigating the risk down to sort of an acceptable level? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, any, anybody that uh, that knows the anything about uh, flying with the Tuckers, that is, that's something that, that, that safety, precision, attention to detail. I mean, all of those things are absolutely synonymous with your all's flying. So that's a, that's a, uh, an answer. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, of course, a Tucker type answer. It is. It's a Tucker-esque answer. <laughs> um, so I want to bring it back a little bit. So you started when you were younger. You started at nine years old. You were announcing for your dad, which is really cool and exciting. At nine years old, I mean, wow, like, what do you say? Like, that's crazy. I was put up on the stage and they're like, okay, you're going to announce for Pat. And I'm like, <laughs> like, I just like nothing, like words didn't come out of my mouth. So can you walk us through the process of like, you know, being at such a young age, nine years old, air shows, like the feelings, the excitement, um, tell everybody about your upbringing. Yeah. So um, it's really lucky to grow up around aviation and that's, um, and then getting, especially the air shows, you know, I mean, there's so many incredible pilots that fly air shows and just these, um, even more than that, just like these incredible characters, right. Um, of just humanity. Right. And so um so I, I traveled with my dad uh, from all my summer vacation from when I was nine to 16 announcing his air shows <clears throat> and the, the life experiences that I got to have and like the people I got to fly with. And, you know, I got to fly with Ed Shipley in his, in his Mustang. I got to fly with Brett Willett in his um, glider and end up soloing gliders at, at 14. Uh, Jimmy Menning was actually the reason why I wanted to uh, fly comedy at because I spent a, a couple weeks with Jimmy Minning and um, helping him build his cabin and then flying a super cabin. He was teaching me all the kind of comedy style flying. And um, so uh, and my kids now are almost eight and almost 10. And um, I wanted to give them back that kind of experience, you know, and um, because I so valued that part of my childhood. And so, um, so anyway, so I guess going back to uh, what was it, 1990 or something like that when I was nine. And we were at this tiny little air show and the announcer, in my opinion, was horrible. Like he called 
the son of Edwin, which is like this tribute to Charlie Hillard and Wayne Hanley and, you know, kind of the birth of um, this kind of high performance aerobatics. And he called my dad, son of Evan, the purple people eater. And I was just like, dad, that was horrible. You flew great. Cause I was the biggest critic. That was horrible. The announcing. I could even do better than that. He goes, okay. Why don't you try it? And I was like, oh boy, what did I get myself into? Uh, and so they put me on the microphone and I turned around and looked at all the thousands and thousands of people there. And I was silent for what felt like an eternity, right? Where it's just like your heart stops, everything stops, the wind stops, the sound stops, time stops. Um, and then uh, I just started talking and what came out of my mouth was perfectly a synthesis of Danny Clisham and Gordon Bowman Jones and narration. And they, you know, they were narrating my dad dad's act all the time and so it was just like this perfect pantomime of the two of them so that's what i said <laughs> it was all plagiarism oh hey but you you were prepared for the moment that's the mark of greatness right there <laughs> right so how has your dad ever announced an air show for you uh nope <laughs> uh-huh uh-huh you ever see that happen <laughs> nope <laughs> 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 might be an uh, ego thing i don't know <laughs> ever return in the favor like, Dad, I did it for you. Come on. <laughs> but, yeah, I did tell my son, um, my oldest son, that I used to announce when I was nine. And he looked at me like, oh, I could see his brain going, really? oh, man. Oh, yeah. I could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He'd have a lot more work cut out for him, though, because I, um, you know, I went to a million air shows before, um, before I announced my dad's routine. So, I, you know, without even trying, I had it all memorized. Um, whereas my son, um, yeah, I do like two or three air shows a year. It's sort of a side gig to give him that experience. So he'd have to make it up all on his own. Yeah, he'd have his work cut out for him. But I wouldn't put it past him. So do they have, uh, how are they with, with uh, performing? And do they seem to be like they, they could uh, take care of that task? So the, yeah, I think so. Um, so my older son is 10, or almost 10. He'll be 10 in like five days. Um, my younger son is just just behind him. He's at eight. And my younger son is like not so thrilled about air shows. He loves to fly the cub. Um, he loves to like chase birds in the cub and throw rolls of toilet paper out and cut the toilet paper. That's like one of his favorite things ever. But if he's going to go to an air show, like his first question is, do I get to fly? It's like, you know, not yet. Oh, probably not. It's real busy. Like, I don't want to go. Do they have a, they better have a good pool. <laughs> My older son, on the other hand, he just wants to like talk about airplanes, draw airplanes, build Lego airplanes, all that sort of stuff. So he is so into it. And um, he actually flew home with me um, from Oshkosh um, in a cub, which is, you know, sort of no small feat. It was like six days and I don't know, 100,000 hours of flying time. I was watching you on Instagram. I'm like, how the heck is that like you doing that? How are you doing that? And how long was the flight from Oshkosh to California? Because you're in California, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it was like six days getting home and getting the cub up over, over the Rockies and the Sierras. Um, wow. It uh, takes a little bit more planning um, and catching thermals <laughs> to be able to get up high enough. Um, but we split the trip up. We had some good friends in Pierre, South Dakota. We saw Jim Pites, and then uh, we went into Red Lodge. We got some dear friends there, and one of them, um, this kid, who's yeah, he's probably nineteen now, uh, maybe twenty, something like that, and um, he's building a Zenith. And so um, we showed up and, and he knows Phoenix is super excited about <clears throat> about it. So he showed up with these like two little airplane pieces or sheet metal pieces. And he had Phoenix deburr the edges and he cut them into an airplane shape and he joined them together and popped some rivets in them. And then they primed it, 
and stuff like that. And so, um, and then we went river rafting. And so like, that was like the highlight of the Phoenix trip was he actually helped them build part of the scene as he was popping rivets with them and everything. And then, um, yeah, then we stopped off in Twin Falls, Idaho and went, uh, cliff jumping into this little lake that I know there. And, uh, yeah. And then we hit the smoke getting over, uh, into Nevada from all the California fires, which got a little bit, um, a little bit gnarly. The visibility went way down, but he was just game for all that. He was navigating the whole time and he, he had the iPad out and he's like, figuring out how far our next destination should be and what airport we should land at and uh, everything about it was super cool. cool. And he was, and he was reading flight of passage while we were doing, it. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book, but yeah, he was reading flight of passage. Nice. Nice. What, <laughs> yeah. what a great memory for him to, to look back. I mean, for both of you to look back on, but you know, that's something that, that you, definitely money can't buy, but I mean, that, that is going to be a landmark memory in, uh, in his life. Definitely. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. And since we're on travel, like what's the furthest you've traveled in the Cub? I think I was reading, I don't know, it's pretty far distance. So I bought it in Georgia um, and then flew it home and then uh, <clears throat> then Oshkosh. And so I'm a corporate pilot for work. So I flew out to Wichita um, and did some uh, recurrent training. Um, and then uh, I spent a couple days there flying and, um, and uh, or a couple days. And I'd never flown Oshkosh. Like all the shows I've done are coastal California shows, you know, so it's like, real cold thick air you know where the airplane has tons of performance um so i wanted to get out there and practice in that kind of higher density altitude so i did a couple days of practice then did recurrent training and then flew it um the rest of the way up to uh to oshkosh or manitowoc and we had a practice box set up there um and then uh but yeah so i mean you know it was like five days getting there a couple of half days because of where destinations where i was going and stuff but uh, every bit of it was just this rad adventure. I mean, I think the thing with flying a cub cross country, especially ours, it only has 12 gallons. So um, you can't really plan where you're going to end up um, because, you know, like a 10 mile an hour wind or a 20 mile an hour wind will like <laughs> make you go a hundred knots or 50 knots. Right. So like almost double your speed, depending on which way it's going. So, um, so yeah, so you, uh, you're sort of along for the ride. Like I, I, I did when I was younger, I did some backpacking around like, Europe and South America. And, um, and it was, it, it becomes an experience that's sort of like that, where it's like, I don't know where I'm going to end up. And that by <laughs> itself kind of defines the adventure of it and the journey and um, makes you talk to different people that you never would have met, makes you experience things you never would have experienced and things you never thought were on your radar. And like, for example, we were, we were trying to get over the Sierras um, and the, the smoke was really bad up near like Truckee. So we went north there and then the smoke ended up moving up north. So we ended up flying down south and i thought we were going to be able to cross over by mammoth but this we got by the because it was clear by the time when we left Truckee. um but the cub takes so long to fly down there the smoke kind of beat us <laughs> and so we tried to cross and the visibility got so bad where i was just like you know like if i wasn't paying attention a lot of attention then i felt like i could get vertigo the smoke was that bad so we bailed out went down to bishop and w while we're going there I'm looking at the iPad and like trying to figure out, okay, because we we're just camping under the wing. So I'm looking at Bishop and the next couple of airports trying to figure out where we can camp. And I saw at Bishop that there's a Thai food restaurant on the field. And uh, I was like, oh my God. But you know, from the air, we can't call. It's like, is this information on Google good? Like, are they really open? That would be amazing. That would be. <laughs> you know, we've been eating like out of this like travel pack of like, you know, yeah. beef jerky and chips and nuts and stuff like that. And so to have a nice warm meal after flying all day would be amazing. And um, so we got down and uh, at, like, we're like 10 feet off the ground before landing. And my son yells, I smell Thai food. <laughs> you know, the Cubs, the doors open. 
And, um, you know, it's like little gems like that, that, you know, if you planned the destination, if you could just, you know, um, you wouldn't have those little moments of glory, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's how some of the best restaurants, airports, destinations are found. Everything. Just kind of yeah. leave yourself open to the experience. It, that's also how I pick airports, by the way, is the uh, food. Who, who's oh, it? Absolutely. Serving what at the end? So, if, what, what is your favorite in-flight snack? I mean, that's that's a pretty long journey that you got going on there. I heard some beef jerky, but what what do you really? Oh my gosh! Okay. 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 So this is going to sound like a sponsor plug, um, and we actually did a little bit of. Uh, I wish I had it with me. I almost always have some. Um, but it's like one of my friends started this company. Yeah, rookie move, right? But one of my friends started this company. Um, called pescovore you know like the you know pescovore or whatever and okay. but they make this smoked albacore that is like okay. um the most sustainably caught fish that you could ever imagine like the um one of my good friends from college her and her husband started it, and her husband has spent his whole life in sustainable fisheries management and all that sort of stuff and um and so it, it's like like the most equally sound fish you could possibly eat, eat um, the most resource and it is so amazingly delicious. It's like shelf stable and all this sort of stuff, but like it tastes like a gourmet meal. And so anytime I open it up, the kids will run for it. They're just like, Trash cover, oh my God. So we had a, we had a grip of that stuff. Um, and it is wonderful. I mean, you could like, it's so good. You could like make a salad or whatever, and then put it on like top of a salad at a high end restaurant and people would think it was amazing. It's not just like a road snack. It's incredible. And I work for Cliff Bar. So, you know, we eat a lot of clip bars because I get them for free. But that Pescovore stuff, man, that is really good. <laughs> Just the passion with which he describes the Pescovore bar. I have to go out and try some of it. It is amazing. It's crazy. You guys know we're going to have to try some of that. We'll even do it on the channel because I'm I'm super stoked about that. And talking like good food. Air. On air taste test. Man, that's a heck of a, a pitch, man. No wonder. Method Seven's got him on the roster. <laughs> wow, why? You know, we were talking to him at, at the uh, at the booth there at the, at Oshkosh, and James was so excited about you know he, oh you got to talk to Eric, you got to meet Eric, and and now I see why. Look at this personality. I mean, this is energy this is, is just amazing. Love it, love it. Yeah, James, James, and all the Method Seven people are just the best too, man. They're such a good team. I agree. I had such a great day over there. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Um, I want to bring it back to the transition from air shows and not to cut you off because we can talk all day. <laughs> um, so you talk about the X, Y, and Z axis, right? Of flying. Um, it's unparalleled to anything else, right? So when did you decide that competition or air shows were your calling? So, you know, I mean, I grew up with all these really incredible opportunities in aviation. And I think um, in that way, I feel like I feel like I'm sort of more like my younger son in that, like my older son, like all he wants to do is dream about airplanes, talk about airplanes, fly airplane simulators, everything like that. Right. Um, actually in his, his two mentors in life, uh, is, are Bob Hoover. And then this guy, Chunk, uh, Jim Kunkel, who flew P-38s in world war two, who's, who's good friends with their pen pals. He's been pen pals with them since he was like seven or whatever. So he built, he just made up his own, he built a Lego P-38 lightning and sent it to him with one of the letters. Um, but yeah. so, so he just lives and breathes for it. And I think I was sort of more like my younger son where I was like, I was just sort of more into doing things. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I have, a, I have like a, a list of, mile of things I want to do. 
And, um, and then I have a shorter list of things that I actually get to do. And I'm just like a total fun junkie. I mean, it's like, we live in Santa Cruz because uh, the surf is amazing. Um, and the mountain biking and the hiking and everything, there's river swimming. It's just like spectacular living here. Um, and, um, so, uh, so yeah, I think, um, I think aviation was just one of those things growing up that I had just such, such incredible opportunities that it's like, okay, well, I definitely have to focus on aviation because I can, you know, there's nothing holding me back. Anything I wanted to do in aviation was kind of open to me. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then after high school, so I got my light, you know, I sold at 14 in gliders and at 16 in the pits, got my license at 17. And then after, and I took all my friends, you know, flying when I was in high school and such. And then after high school, I took a couple of years off of flying um, just kind of to be mindful of that is that like is it something that i really love or is it just something that like i had really incredible experiences and it was something my dad loved and so so i ended up um i traveled around for a year i was a snowboard instructor um for a whole season um in steamboat springs and then i spent like five months in europe on that you know that year or whatever and then went to college um and i was like you know i don't know second or third year in college or something like that and just had a barbecue kind of house party or whatever, drink, drinking beers with some friends. And, um, and the subject came up with flying and, or somebody there had their pilot's license. I'm like, Oh, I got my pilot's license too. My buddy socked me in the arm. He's like, what the hell? I've known you for three years and I never heard that you have your pilot's license before. What the hell Tucker? And I was like, yeah, like, Good point. I guess it never came up. <laughs> and so uh, that night, I promised all my buddies there that I would go get recurrent and take them all flying. And uh, and I did. And I was like, you know what? This is really awesome. And so then I, I, I pieced together through like all, you know, instrument rating, commercial, all that instructor rating. And um, as soon as I got my CFI, I quit painting houses for a living. <laughs> because it's like, this is amazing, right? Um, Career movement. Cutting in is just a... Oh, a, man. That was a no-brainer, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So cool. So cool. And since we're on school, before I forget, I know a viewer called me and told me to ask you a question. Um, it was about an eighth grade talent show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's how I met my wife. So I was in eighth grade. Um, my wife was in sixth grade and it was like a back to school rally. And it was um, almost a talent show. It was uh, like one step more goofy, actually probably like a hundred steps goofier than talent show. It was a lip sync contest. Um, and so like, they had every homeroom had a group of lip syncers or whatever. And then they picked the best individuals out of each group. And then out of like the 20 best individuals, my wife and I got picked as the two finalists, best lip syncers. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, and then uh, we tied for first place. Uh, and it was like, by the sound of your applause, Eric, oh, Jill. Oh. And they're like, crap, we have a tie. And it was cassette tape days. Right. And so they're like, they hadn't prepared. They had all the songs queued up for all the other songs or whatever, but not for a tiebreaker. So they're like, oh crap. And so they're fast forwarding and reversing through, like, you know, trying to figure out what song are we gonna do, what song are we gonna do. And so, um, and and we're just standing up there like like dorks, like you know, in front of everybody with nothing going on. And you know, so I was already in show business at that point. So I I busted out with the acapella, you ain't nothing but a hound. Oh, <laughs> And the audience loved it. And then we had a tiebreaker and I won. And I actually think, and this is going to sound weird at first, but then I think it'll, it'll make me sound less conceited <laughs> after I explain. But so I think the only reason why my wife and I are together or ever got together um, is because I won. And the reason I say that is because I won, they kept me on stage for 
like you know a beat longer than her it's like you know you run her up jill okay bye bye and then eric ah, and then i went down off stage and i would come came on the stairs and i gave jill a big hug i'm like jill and i gave her a big hug and anyways her first memory of me is looking up the stairs at this like tall dark and handsome blah 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 and whereas reality if it had been the other way around her first memory of me would be coming down the stairs and looking at me and at the time I was four foot nine and she was five foot nine. And so oh. her first memory of me would have been like, oh my gosh, what a cute little kid. But instead her first memory of me is like, oh, <laughs> looking up. So I think that might've been, um, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? <laughs> I mean, well done with the Elvis. That's uh go to there. Well, as Danny Christian would say, show business is my line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who who would have thought we'd come on here with Eric Tucker and get a little uh, little serenade? I mean, where else are you getting that butt here? Never. <laughs> we aim to entertain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that was from Mike Tyson. So he says hi. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, love Mike. He's family. We're throwing it out there to the audience. I mean, we're, we're, getting, we're, we're crowdsourcing this. You know what I mean? I like to get to know the people I talk to. <laughs> um, so your act, right? I, we, I don't think we've even talked about the act. You have three different types of acts. Um, mm -hmm. You have the, well, I'll let you talk about it. So you have the dead stick. You have the landing on the ambulance. So um, talk about that, how that came about. How did you come up with the concept, what practice was involved? Cause I'm sure there was a lot of planning involved with that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> so when I flew with Jimmy Minning when I was 12 years old in Super Cup, um, that's when I decided I wanted to do a comedy act. He didn't have a car top uh, landing, he used to do them. And so we talked about them a bunch that week. Uh, and I just kind of became a bit of that whole style of flying. Um, and um and we spent the you know we spent the better part of two weeks like actually learning how to fly this stuff so i mean like i remember so i was 12 and one of the things that we we did a bunch is we'd fly straight down the runway we worked on all kinds of coordination exercises kind of the graduation exercise that we're working on towards the end of the week was to fly a slip the whole way down the runway and um and his he said he wanted me to look out the left side of the window and look at well we did off the left and right but look at the wingtip and um, in a slip, you know, not quite full rudder, but mostly, most rudder, he wanted me to keep the wingtip exactly three feet off the runway, the entire length of the runway, like right down the center line. So keep that wingtip exactly over the center line, three feet, the whole way down. Um, and then we worked on other stuff where we'd like throw toilet paper out the window and we'd swoop down and cut it like the old barnstormer stuff. And then he actually had um, a skylight uh, that he could take off of, of his airplane. And then he'd stand up on the seat and um, he had a holster that he'd put on the top of the stick and he'd fly the airplane with his foot in his act and uh, in his comedy act. And so uh, he taught me to do that. And the first time I did it, I put like put, barely peeked my eye out. and was like, oh, my God. And then by the end of the week, I was like arms free, <laughs> flying with one foot. Just like, yeah, this is the best thing ever. Um, so I've been wanting to do it since I was 12. And, um, you know, I, I got in, uh, just had better opportunities to do some in the high performance airplane and pits and extras and I actually flew uh, a year of air shows in the columbia 400 too it's sort of like an aviation safety kind of bob hoover type routine air show routine um but anyway so um the so all my air air show experiences were in like competition well first i did competition and that was kind of like the the entry level kind of um 
establish the skills and the fundamental brain like decision making process of how do you uh, handle energy management, high stress. Like that's absolutely the best way for anybody to get into like flying air shows is to um, kind of cut your teeth on the competition stuff um, in like a really safe manner. And then um, and then, yeah, I got to fly um, with the stars of tomorrow. We did like the kind of and so it was like high performance airplanes. I was flying the pits um, and my dad brought Bill Stein in to teach us formation and kind of the idea was that we'd do like a nice formation path beginning and maybe a loop or something like that and then a formation path at the end and um and bill is such an amazing formation sort of thinker as well as coach i mean he is like hands down i think like the world leader in formation thought and coaching and um the psychology of it the decision making and all that um and so um so like you know he had he had a very small amount of time to form us and we ended up doing like um, a pretty awesome formation uh, act with like all the elements from like Red Barons or what ended up or actually our first sequence um, was in the, as a collaborators, which I flew later um, with Bill and my dad uh, and Ben Freelove was the uh, was the Stars of Tomorrow sequence. So it was like that was exactly our first sequence. Um, so uh, and that's all because of Bill. Uh, and then and Wayne Hanley came down to help and um Randy Howe, John Ponson, all, you know, so we had a bunch of people, but the only reason it all came together was because of Bill Stein, who I just think the world of. Um, oh. But so, so, and then I got out of uh, flying, I got, had babies. And it's like, you know, I wanted to have a job where I wasn't traveling quite as much as my dad had to. Um, so I got into the corporate flying side of things. And, you know, it was like, I don't know, probably five or six years later or something like that, where I started kind of getting the itch. I mean, it's, Airshow flying is like this weird, like niche skill. Um, and uh, there's sort of no way to scratch that itch outside of like airshow flying, you know what I mean? And so, um, so I started kind of getting the itch to pursue an aviation endeavor that would uh, allow me to grow and stretch on like kind of stick and rudder style um, and do something sort of more exceptional again as like a personal pursuit. Um, because I was corporate flying and corporate flying is great. It's a wonderful job. And I love like the scenery It's the best office ever. Um, but it's, uh, but it doesn't have that same sort of rewarding personal growth aspect to it, you know, cause you're, um, you're, it's kind of the best way to be a bus driver ever, but you know, you're driving a bus. Right. Um, and so, so I started talking to my wife and I was like, you know, like, I think we should do this comedy act thing. And, um, and also, yeah. And I was looking at other airplanes too. I was thinking, um, you know, one of my dreams ever since, you know, watching the Yonkins, both the Yonkins fly their beach 18, and then also going back another, I don't know, 20, 30 years or something like that. And watching Bill Reisman, one of his first air show acts was Yak Attack, where he had the beach 18 and then the two Yak 52s. Um, I've wanted to fly a beach 18 in shows ever since. I mean, there's all these different airplanes that I'd love to fly in shows. Um, but it just, as it turns out, you can buy an airplane for a comedy act for like $30,000. Um, <laughs> and all the other ones, you know, like a new extra is going to be what, 600000 yeah. So I'm like, okay, we can, we can make this work. And so I was looking at, you know, I was looking at vans and trucks and then maybe even like a, a, a motorhome like Kent Peach used to do, you know, land on. So I'm thinking, okay, well, it'd be like some tax deductible dual purpose vehicle, you know, it'd be a guest house, guest room when, uh, when we're not air showing it. And like, you know how everybody in relationship draws lines in the sand? It's like my wife and I were sitting sitting in bed. It's like kids are kids are in bed. It's ten o'clock at night. We're looking at our phones, kind of shopping for vehicles for the car top landing. Um, and I mentioned a motorhome, and it's like the music stops. <laughs> my wife draws her line, saying, "She's like, 
oh no, you will not catch me dead in a Winnebago. You know, she's like went to art school. So like aesthetics to her are visceral. Uh, it's like this visceral experience. Um, and I'm the complete opposite. And she's just, and I was like, what are you talking about? Winnebago would be awesome. And, you know, we can use it for camping, blah, 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 all this functional engineering brain stuff. She's like, mm, uh, uh, <laughs> not in my house. And so, um, so I'm like, okay, well, you find the vehicle. What do you think we, we should land on? Um, and five minutes later, uh, she shows me this Craigslist posting from Flagstaff, Arizona of the ambulance that we have. Um, and Sean, I don't know if you've seen the ambulance, but like, it is a good looking ambulance. You know, it, it's very Ghostbusters-esque. Um, and uh, I just thought to myself, like actually when we first got it, we used to live like a mile from the beach. And the first time we drove it down to the beach, three people yelled, yeah, Ghostbusters, when we drove by. So it had that like romance to it or whatever. And um, she, I think she showed it to me half joking at least. And I was like, oh my gosh. And my kids were, you know, like, three and five or something like that at the time or, or four and six. I'm like, the kids will go freaking nuts if I bring home an ambulance that looks like a fire truck. And so like, you know, a week and a half later, I showed up at home with the lights and sirens blazing. And the kids came running out, pouring rain. It was fantastic. So, um, so yeah, so that's how we got the, uh, got back into the comedy plan uh, and all. And so I guess to answer your question, we do three different acts. We do the comedy act. Um, that the way we scripted, so then we had this ambulance to land on. It's like, okay, well, how are we going to work this into the script? We thought of all kinds of different things. So the, the way it goes is like normal flying farmer routine for the comedy act. And then the end of the comedy act, the announcer's talking to me and he's trying to teach me, talk me, talk me down, teach me how to land. And I just go, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. This is really hard. My character is this kind of hillbill with bad teeth in Tennessee and, um, and a free Britney spirit, free Britney hat. <laughs> It's my favorite part. <laughs> but um, And so they announced they had this one idea. We had this ambulance, an experimental. It hasn't been used yet, but it has these magnets in it. So all you got to do is fly close, and he's going to flip on the magnets, and it's just going to suck you down. <laughs> and so um, my, one of my favorite parts about the whole thing is that people come up to me from the crowd afterwards, and they'll be like, oh, my gosh, like you had us going for a while there. We thought you really didn't know how to fly, and then we kind of figured that out. But seriously, how do those magnets work? <laughs> like yes we got you um and then the dead stick routine um is uh it that's just like one of my favorite things ever you know i, I one of my early aviation experiences was flying gliders when i was a kid and um i'm still just infatuated with that you know one thing on that long list of things i'd love to do in life um is uh, cross-country glider flying because I just did a bunch of local soaring and ridge lift and a little bit of wave lift and thermals and stuff but I still haven't really got to do like the long cross countries and to me that's just like the ultimate expression of aviation because you're just a bird and you they can't flap its wings so you have to figure out you have to be so in tune with like the air and the local weather and and how geology or geography affects all that um and so um so gliding has always been one of my favorite uh favorite experiences and kind of meditation um, and so doing like the glider aerobatics, um, you know, I used to, when I was in college, I used to go out, um, to the local airport and I'd climb up to like five or 6,000 feet at night. Um, and then turn everything off the tower was closed and everything. I'd turn everything off all the engine and everything. Um, and then just do like a million wingovers down and then the dead stick landing. Um, don't tell the flight school. They probably, they probably didn't know, <laughs> but your secret's safe with us. Yeah, I rented the airplane for three. Yeah, right. <laughs> I rented the airplane for three tenths and um, and got just like a fantastic flying experience out of it. So that was kind of 
where I, you know, I wasn't even 152s. I wasn't doing aerobatics, just like wingovers and stuff like that. But that was where I was like, oh my God, doing a dead stick routine would be amazing. And so, um, yeah, so that's just like this juicy, low risk, um, low, uh, low stress sequence because all the time you're really really high altitude um and um so yeah that's just like just the funnest act ever so how do you uh, you mentioned meditation you know it's kind of getting out there and and being really peaceful in in terms of using the the glider and riding the thermals but how how do you meditate how do you turn it off it it seems like there's so much going on with uh, the air shows and of course corporate flying being a parent is no small uh, task either so how does eric talk turn it off um, you know, like that's sort of interesting. I mean, I think, um, a couple things. One is, um, this goes back to a Bill Stein, uh, sort of coaching deal is he said, fly every air show, like it's practice and every practice, like it's an air show. So it's like, whatever your routine is, you know, and some people are real rigorous. We're like, they have to get completely away from people for exactly 30 minutes. And they go through this very like sort of OCD type of thing. And that's what works for some people. And everybody, you know, I was just talking to one of my friends who's getting into competition aerobatics. Um, and I think that's what he thought everybody meant by like, turn it off. And it's like, I, I think it really is. It's just like, whatever you do, you want to get into the same mental framework that you're in before you, before you go do something that is really, really high demand um, and low margins like air show flying. Um, and so, um, so, I mean, I think, so there's that aspect of it. And then, um, and I, I guess it's like, uh, well, I guess a couple of things. So one is, um, after it's a lot of, it was a lot easier to get this kind of thing together before like a wife and kid and jobs and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I'm almost more impressed that people orchestrate their life and their finances and everything to like allow themselves to excel in things than the actual skill that they possess because it's like that's that's a challenge right um and especially you know being in it like in a marriage where it's like you know you have to um or i guess the whole family it's like you have to make it work for everybody not just me it's not you know it's like i got full-time job and i have all these other duties so it's like okay so how do we make it work for everybody where everybody has buy-in everybody thinks it's a good idea um and everybody gets some sort of like personal reward to it so i think that was a big sort of balancing act to to make sure that um we can, we could do it all. Um, and you know, really it, it was, that was truly like one of my main inspirators to give my kids the same kind of experience, right. Um, that I had growing up. Um, and then to be able to afford the cub is like the perfect airplane to afford, um, to be able to afford an airplane to like w- teach them how to fly in too. Um, it's just the most approachable airplane ever. Right. And so, um, so yeah, I guess there's all that. And then I think the, um, you know, the, the challenge is getting yourself in a mental framework where you can execute the plan safely and then, so obviously that requires like having a plan, practice, practice the plan uh, and all that. Um, but it's the, the reward is that actual moment. So like, um, I think, you know, like that flow state that Malcolm Gladwell talked about, right. Is um, where you're just like absolutely in the moment. So to me, airship flying is absolutely, absolutely that. So is like surfing and mountain biking and just like all those kinds of hobbies. Um, and then, where I am striving towards, you know, like um, I always have loved uh, playing music and I've been trying to play guitar since I was like sixth grade. And just the last like year or so, I feel like I've finally broken through on guitar where I can go to like any campfire and sit down and play and like figure out what they're playing and like play along and stuff like that. I still have a ton to learn and I'm definitely not to like flow state on the guitar. I've been playing drums since high school and that came okay. And so I, you know, I can reach kind of flow state where I'm playing with people on, on the drums and I'm just barely starting to get there. Um, melodically um 
that banjo was sort of my gateway drug into melody and uh and then uh i've sort of evolved that into to the guitar yeah yeah being from the south the banjo is my instrument uh of oh man i love the banjo where, where in the south are you from well I, i'm originally from fort myers down uh, south florida so actually uh some would not call that the south although uh i live in central florida <laughs> out in the country <laughs> central florida has, has some has some hillbilly to it Oh, okay. you ain't wrong. It's right next to the left of me and right next to the right here, Eric. And, and then a mouse. You know? Yeah. Oh, forget me. Yeah, I'm from Chicago. So yeah, and then um, completely different. Yeah. Um, well, so, and then I think that the other thing um, that I always try and plug to like every aviator um, is Deep Survival. Have you guys heard of the book Deep Survival? I don't think so. No. Yeah, I think Patrick told me about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, the subtext bill, bill turned me on to this book, uh, 20 something years ago. Um, and the subtext of the book is who lives and who dies and why. And it's really just sort of like a primer that got us thinking about aviation through this lens of how is the brain wired. And because of the way that it, the brain is wired, what advantages and disadvantages, what are the sort of potential pitfalls and what are the strengths that we can leverage to, um, exercise, uh, in this environment, kind of this high stress, low, low risk environment. Um, and, uh, and then we've spent like the last 20 years empirically studying ourselves as well as like all the upset training, um, kind of upset recovery training, and then the corporate world and looking at aviation through this lens. Um, and, uh, I think every aviator should read deep survival and then continue to like study themselves and, and aviation like that. And I think that's the single biggest thing you can do to, um, affect safety in the cockpit is, understand this stuff so basically like the um the sort of in a nutshell i guess the brief version of it is that the brain we think of ourselves as like thinkers right humans are like cognitive beasts where like we analyze things and we analyze what the risk is and we make decisions and all this sort of stuff right and that is very true that's why we were able to engineer airplanes and we can figure out how to operate them and all this stuff however when you're under stress the way the the way that the brain is designed the amygdala and these sort of deeper lizard brain centers, they receive sensory input first. And if they if they sense an emergency of any sort of situation, they the, the amygdala enacts fight or flight and it makes it impossible to think cognitively. So it's like the, by design, the brain doesn't allow you to think under stress. And so when you look at all these aviation accidents, typically what we do as humans is we all back and we go like, what was that guy thinking? And the point, you know, when they get in the accident, and the point is he wasn't thinking because he couldn't. And none of us in that room could think because our brains aren't wired that way. So now how do we take that wiring of the brain and um, and then figure out how to set ourselves up so that if we ever get into whatever the potential scenarios are, um, how do we set ourselves up to be the ones that survive or make the good decisions? And, you know, so a lot of that's just like creatures of habit, you know, like, uh, I think it's common knowledge that if you don't ever practice go arounds, then you're never going to go around when you should, right? Like the, every flight instructor will teach you, like, like you want to see your student do a bunch of go arounds because they had to, because then you know, like, okay, they're the person, they're getting that practice. So that's kind of the basic level stuff. And then the other, like the more deeper brain understanding would be if you, um, if you sense, if you, if you get stressed, so um, the, the upside and downside to the system and how the brain is wired is that the downside is that you can't think under stress. The upside is that those amygdala, that fight or flight response is very, very resilient under stress. So if you program it correctly with like the proper training and experience and desensitizing and all this sort of stuff, 
um, beforehand, then you will very, you'll be very reliable um, at executing the proper response. So for example, um, like if you program how to the brain and the brain is actually really, really good at, um, at learning survival skills. So for example, um, like spin recoveries, um, I was, I think my, my best story of this is when I was, uh, I guess I was 14. It was right after I soloed and I did my first glider aerobatic ride, um, or lesson. And like, you know how, like, uh, everybody who's flown aerobatics, like the first time you get back from flying, it's like, you're just mentally exhausted, kind of the equivalent of like getting a horrible night's sleep and then, um, waking up at like three in the morning and going on like a 12 hour flight or car ride or whatever. And then, um, and then doing a math <laughs> final, like at the end of that, you're just like, you can't think you just blah, like somebody asks you a question and you just, I, I don't know. Right. And so I felt like that aerobatics will make you feel like that in like 10 minutes. Right. Um, especially when you don't have any G tolerance and all. So I was kind of in that state and I looked out at the glider and it had gliders have a string instead of a ball. And so the concept is instead of stepping on the ball to get the aircraft coordinated, you pull the string with the officer rep. So it's just a, just the opposite. And I looked at the string and the string was over to the left and I pushed, I was like, Oh, we'll step on the string. So I pushed on the string and it got worse. And I was like, Oh, I don't know. So I was like, you know, gliders need a lot of rudder. So I pushed more and it got worse. I'm like, Screw it. I'm pushing all the rudder stuff. I pushed all the rudder. And at this point, we're like just about to get into the patterns. We're like 1200 AGL and like instant stall spin, you know, it's like, cause you're like uncoordinated slipping that whole thing. Um, and, uh, and 1200 feet, I mean, in the glider, you're probably gonna lose, I don't know, 150 feet for rotation. So that's a lot of rotation. So like, it's less critical than it sounds to like the general aviation pilot or whatever, but still you're like in the pattern and spinning, um, which is a horrible place to be on accident. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and instantly because i already had a bunch of spin training um in the pits you know we'd already done a bunch of aerobatic flying instantly i put opposite rudder and, and forward stick um and like before i could even think it's like instantly that happened and as soon as the spin happened and i stopped it then everything made sense it's like oh my gosh i was thinking of the the you know i every it came into complete mental clarity and instead of being stressed and not being able to think boom as soon as it happened as soon as i understood what was happening in the world i came back to thinking and I, uh, my instructor was laughing. He's like, oh, my God, you put in all the recovery before I even got on the controls. But, you know, it's like um, and we were talking about it. And so like so we have a bunch of experiences collectively through um, kind of me and my peers that talk about this stuff um, where it's just there's so much value in understanding and looking through aviation through that veil that um, anybody I talk to about aviation, I'm like, you need to read Deep Survival. <laughs> That's one of these days i'll meet the author just give him a hug that's that's a well-warranted hug there uh and, and yeah. definitely a, a great pitch for the book a really good uh a, a statement on uh learning and and kind of knowing themselves knowing how to uh to, to improve themselves uh cognitively i mean a lot of times we're just uh kind of going around and and just bouncing from thing to thing but really digging de deeply down and, and seeing how we work is uh is super crucial so a, a great suggestion i'm going to read the book no doubt and uh of course, by the next yeah, it's fantastic. Year, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll give you a fist bump for the uh, the suggestion. Nice, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's one of the most interesting things about like sort of the personal journey of like the air show flying is that it's such it, you're kind of constantly walking this line between like confidence and over like being timid and being overconfident is equally dangerous. So you have to figure out how to be completely in line with where your training's at, where your currency's at, where your fatigue levels at, and um. And then to learn to be honest with yourself about what kind of day you're having 
and where you should throttle back, what maneuvers are like, you know, like that one, I'm just not hundred percent confident. So like I'll replace that one. And so that's, um, that's one of the interesting personal journeys is like walking that, that line with air show flying. I imagine that, that this information is really something that could be used in the corporate world as well, or any commercial pilots or, or anybody Absolutely. who doesn't have a lot of, of stick and rudder training. So how is it that you take that message to, to that particular crowd? Yeah. So, I mean, I've given a, a lot of talks um, on, on this, these kinds of things, you know, like local business, uh, business aviation association, even ICAST, like the international council of air shows, the safety stand down um, and those kinds of things. Um, and then uh, Randy, and I, I've done a bunch of upset training. So it's always part of what we talk about. Um, it, it becomes the, the most talked about topic. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite uh, experiences with it was Randy Howell. So Randy Howell owns the Patriots jet team and he's been a dear friend forever. He, Flew 747s, I think for United. Um, so, you know, he flew for the airlines for, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. Um, and then he flew, he's flown MiGs, MiG-17s in, um, in air shows. And he's got a bunch of L-39s that he flies now um, in, as a formation team, the Patriots jet team. He's got a seaplane and all this sort of stuff. So he's just like this incredibly well-rounded aviator um, and uh, very successful at every single aspect of aviation. Um, and so when he was start talking about creating an upset training program, I went up and spent couple days with him just to kind of talk through like what we've learned and help him with the syllabus and and that kind of thing um and then fast forward like another year later and i got uh cliff bar um i i, I got the whole group to go through an upset of pilots to go through an upset training course so it's uh, i'm one of five pilots for for cliff bar and um but so anyways the um when um before the first brief and our plan was to do two days at, at my dad's flight school in like a pitcher and extra and learn kind of all the basic upset training um uh, skills and, uh, and then apply that in one day in Randy Howell school. Um, normally, and we did basically Randy's, uh, curriculum that we created, but instead of doing the first two days in an L39, we did the first two days in a pits or an extra, um, at, at our school. And then, uh, and then our graduation flight, kind of the flight to apply those skills was in Randy's saber liner. And, um, so before we did all that, we did, we had a brief, uh, for, and so that we could talk about like all the theory stuff. And so that way we just very efficiently marched through all the flights and the, the briefing for the flights would just be, okay, remember, this is what we're going to do. We go out and do them. Um, and the focus could be on the debrief. So the big brief was like, you know, I planned like six hours long or something like that. And probably four of those hours, uh, two of those hours, we talked about, you know, physics of flight and maneuvering and G's and um, jumping out and parachute use and all that. And then the, the large majority of that, we talked about the brain stuff. Um, and Randy Howe was sitting in the back and when we got to the brain stuff, he is, and he's, he's kind of a type A personality uh, type of deal. I mean, anybody that's going to be that successful in all those things that he does, you know, he takes a little bit of a type A, but he's a little bit type A. And uh, he, I saw him, he was just like fidgeting and like, he's just like, you, I could tell he was thinking, it's like, what the hell are we talking about all this brain stuff for? And he's just getting frustrated. Like he wanted to talk about, and he was new to teaching upsets. He's like, I just want to talk about lift, weight, thrust, drag, um, <laughs> loops, rolls, you know, G's, all this sort of stuff. Um, of course, of course. And then, and then about like, I don't know, like an hour and a half or two hours into kind of talking about this brain stuff, he started getting really interesting. And, um, and then by the end of it, he was just like, I had, I had hooked him. And, uh, he came up to me like, a, uh, like a week later and he, he apologized to me. He's like, man, I feel like such a jerk. I thought I was so pissed that you had me sitting in this stupid briefing room talking about psychology when we're supposed to be talking about airplanes. <laughs> and, um, and he's, and now he says, he's like, I think that's all we should talk about. And that's what like the majority of what they focus on too. So taking somebody that has 
spent his life flying and being very successful in all these realms from air, airlines to, uh, to jets, to air shows, to float planes, um, and had never thought about this kind of stuff. Now he thinks about it. He's like, that's all we should talk about. The only thing we should talk about for flight safety is how does the brain react? And then we can apply that to, you know, upsets and, you know, all these different things. Um, but so, yeah, so there's so much value in thinking, thinking through those kinds of things. I mean, even just like the recent crash that in Truckee, I mean, like every, every accident you end up reading, if you look at it through this realm, you can not only learn and get, I think, a deeper understanding um, about what was probably going on in the cockpit, but you can also imagine how you could get there. And, um, and by imagining how you personally could get to do the same mistake that these guys did, then you can back it up and figure out, okay, how could, if I could get there, then how could I prevent it? How can you work your training and your habits and all that so that you don't end up to be in that guy? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That's something Pat and I talk about all the time. And, you know, going back to the support system, you do also need to be supported by your family and your wife and just be in that headspace, right? Because you can't take any of that into the cockpit. So that totally yeah. makes sense. Which I did have a question. Um, so your wife and your mom, <laughs> I'm bringing mm-hmm. it back to women in aviation. Yep. Um, I can only imagine the conversations you have at home with, you know, some ideas that you have with your wife, like, from a support system and from like being on the ground, I know what I do for Patrick and there's certain moments I'm like, Oh babe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, how does she feel? And then you get it from both. You get it from your mom and your wife, like with you flying this type of act and being in aviation and like, yeah. Things- I mean, I think, I think like to some extent it was sort of like the precedent that was set. you know what I mean? Like my dad was already into air show um, and aerobatics really heavily um, or into aerobatics really heavily when he started dating my mom. Um, so it was sort of like, you know, something that was there from the beginning. So you didn't have to decide, be like, Hey, so I got this great idea. What I really want to do is play air shows, you know, um, so it wasn't like coming from an accountant background or something like that. And then like out of left field. Right. So, um, so I think that's sort of part of it. Like it was, uh, sort of it it, it, it it seems like a logical pr- progression to both of them um and then um but but yeah i mean it's like the the at the end of the day like um it's really dangerous right uh, it can be potentially fatal and like we've all anybody who's been around aviation or uh, even more particularly like air shows um has experienced like dear friends dying and and crashing and stuff like that right um, which is just totally tragic and, um, and, you know, heartbreaking. And so I think, um, you know, I don't think anything in life is worth, uh, dying for and crashing and, um, not coming home for, especially, you know, having kids. Right. And, um, uh, hold on just a second. I'm going to take the collar off my dog. She's starting to make, oh, make <laughs> oh good doggers. You stay, you stay. Um, uh, so, um, but so anyways, the, uh, um, but you, and and I think that's also sort of like a, a little bit of a misnomer in terms of like you know everybody talks about well how do you be safe in aviation and you know aviation safety this and that and I think the real answer is like there's no such thing as safe aviation it's like aviation is not safe you're in a machine that's like hurling through the sky and it's just it's not safe um, but neither is life and so it's like how do you how do you mitigate that risk. Um, down to an acceptable level. I mean, my great grandfather, um, literally he, he died, um, because he got, was walking across the street and got hit by a bus and he had a bunch of kids at home. Um, my grandma was, I think nine years old or seven years old. Um, and so, um, so it's like, okay, so 
life is not safe and you can't live your life in fear. Right. And so you have to, you have to figure out how to um, mitigate that risk down to an acceptable level. And I think that's where it gets into like the training and the preparation and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that's, um, I think my, my wife and my mom probably ground themselves in, in, in those kinds of things. Um, and then, uh, and then absolutely like without my wife's support, uh, number one, it'd be kind of a jerk move to do something like air show flying without her support. Right. Uh, and then also just the logistics of it, I could never pull it off without, without having her there with me and, uh, supporting like the whole infrastructure of getting there and buying the airplanes and ushering the kids through the process and like just everything about it. So, yeah. There's nothing easy about air shows and kids. I mean, it's, it, it is, it's a wonderful thing to have them there. It is so great to have family at air shows, but man, <laughs> is it a mammoth task. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nick's blessing for sure. We enjoyed having ours at, uh, at Oshkosh, but I tell you what, I, uh, I also enjoyed putting them on the plane in Appleton on a third. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Love you, hon. See you at home. <laughs> Daddy's going to go have daddy time. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh gosh. Um, okay. Um, so we're, we're kind of ending the near of our little talk, a little interview. I just wanted to ask some questions. Um, off the wall questions. If you, I know that your act came from your, I guess, obsession with the 1920s, 1920s, 1940s. So if you had a time machine and you could go back in time, what era would you go back to? I mean, for aviation, I think the, um, I think I would be, it seems like the barnstormer era would, um, would be a really exciting time for a couple of reasons. One is before that, like, I feel like there was um, the engineering wasn't as good, and the the understanding of how do airplanes fly, why do airplanes stall, why do airplanes spin um, was not well understood um, or managed. Um, um, although you know, so that said, um, yeah, I think the barnstormer era was some of the some of the coolest flying, um, and um, but the, like I'm sort of intrigued by all those World War One airplanes. Um, I mean, I think the Cub kind of flies a lot, like a lot of those, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't have the innate stability. It doesn't have, um, the performance, uh, the roll rate is certainly like the worst roll rate of any airplane I've ever flown. I mean, like that Sabre liner, um, and almost every airplane has a roll rate of about, seems like about three and a half seconds or something like that. Whereas, um, the Cub it's like 11 or something stupid. <laughs> like it's so incredibly slow. Um, but so I think... Plane. Yeah, so I'm sort of fascinated by like those World War World War One airplanes. Um, um, but yeah, yeah. I, so I I think I would go like just after World War One. Okay. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm obsessed with like World War Two and like Wonder Woman, and obviously Wonder Woman. Maybe yeah. no, it's like yeah, that whole era, the aircraft. Like I kept going to like the vintage area, and Pat's like, can we stop? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, nope, I have to come make my pilgrimage to the stagger wings again today. <laughs> Every day. I'm going to learn something new. And then just interview yep. Iggy and the women are for service pilots. I've been learning so much about the history of aviation. So I am like literally obsessed with it. Very, so. very cool. Um, if you had unlimited resources and you could design your own play, plane, what are the critical components of the aircraft that you would design? 
Oh man, I think I would try uh, unlimited resources. I would totally um, try and pick up where Leo Loudensager left off with the shark. Do you guys know that airplane? No. So yeah. Is that like so a, right uh, before? No, I don't think I know that. Uh, we're not talking about the the little ultralight over in um, or the LSA over in in Europe. No, no. So so Leo Loudensager. Slager, you know, he's, I don't know, um, kind of the original badass in, in high performance aerobatics. Um, and um, he died, he, he got in a motorcycle accident, actually, uh, and passed away. Uh, I mean, I was young, I was maybe 13 or something like that. But he was like, just the most explosive and precise um, flyer you'd ever seen and totally revolutionized the way that everybody flies airplanes. Um, yeah, it ended up resulting in like my dad and Goulian and Holland and Kevin Coleman and Bill Stein and all these guys, like it all, it all stems from the way that Leo approached, uh, approached high performance aerobatics and competition aerobatics. Um, and so anyways, so he had, uh, you know, he had a laser 200 that he was flying. Um, and he was so obsessive, like compulsive about, um, performance and, uh, at, of the airplane and human performance, um, that like, you know, on the airplane side, like every single screw had exactly three threads that went into it. And, um, and then he would, t if it had more than that, he would take it out, grind it down. So it had exactly wow. three threads because, you know, do that to a thousand screws. You're going to save like 15 pounds or something, yeah. something like that on the airplane. Um, and he would do that. He would go through that length. Even if he was only going to save two pounds on the airplane, he would go through that. Like, like his seatbelt were not adjustable. He just had to like, <laughs> suck in to be able to buckle them because he didn't want to waste the two ounces of extra fabric hanging wow. off the seatbelt. So he, and he took that that precision to um his flying like his snap roll on takeoff he wanted it to be exactly two and a half feet. he wanted his wingtip to be exactly two and a half feet off the ground or whatever the number was um it was scary low but um he wanted as he was coming through knife edge on the snap roll he wanted his wingtip to be like two feet six inches not two feet four inches not two feet eight inches like exactly so he would just do it over and over and over again have him coach somebody coaching him on the ground until he got it exactly every single time so, so, anyway, so he took that approach to designing a new aerobatic airplane. And it's actually, it used to, it used to be in the EA museum and now it's hanging in, um, not the weeks hangar over on the West side of the field, whatever the hangar just, uh, just East to that is called, um, um, I'm drawing a blank on what the name is, but anyways, um, he took this airplane and, um, made it insane light. I mean, it weighs it something ludicrous, like 850 pounds where most other aerobatic airplanes are going to weigh like, you know, 1250 or something like that for like that sort of six cylinder size uh, aerobatic plane or more. Um, so it's just ridiculously light. Um, and it, his goal was to be able to do like the 3d kind of model airplane type of stuff. It was going to have better than thrust one, uh, one to one thrust to weight ratio. It had super high throw, um, deflection. It had a, it had a, a rudder that, you know, the, the rudder is almost still kind of mostly on top of the elevator. Well, his had this rudder that would fold down. It would fold up for, for landing. So it could have the same amount. And then when he got in the air, he could extend the, the, the shark fin or whatever, which I think is part of why they call it a shark. But so anyways, I think, um, to me, that three dimensional kind of low speed, um, aerobatics is, uh, is really, really intriguing. Um, so I think that, uh, and then I would also love to do uh, uh, air show and a stagger wing. Stagger wings are the best. <laughs> I've never flown one yet. Uh, I just I have been Twitter baited by them uh, my whole life. So beautiful. I mean, it's such a classic design. Oh my goodness! Yeah, 
Yeah, they just everything about them, the lines, the, the the performance, the sound, everything about them is just it gets me. Did you see a few of them uh, nicely wrapped at uh, Oshkosh there? They had the moving blankets and the shrink wrap on them there, uh, protecting them from the hail. So it's, uh, you know, it's... It, I'd have been terrified to leave an airplane out that night. I know. I, I, you know, I talked to a couple of those pilots and they said they all said the same thing. Uh, about 6.30, 7 o'clock that night, they said, well, we've done all we can. We called the insurance agent. Insurance is paid up going for a beer. So I guess they just had yep. a really, I, I, I'd have been, you know, I could have a, a 152 there and just be on edge going, oh, no. these guys are they got a stagger wing over here going, eh, you know, insurance is paid. Yep. I'm having two beers to start with. <laughs> you ain't wrong. No worries. Yeah. No lots of worries, fella. Yeah. I know Pat was worried about his pits. She <laughs> kept looking at the weather. I bet. Babe. It is. <laughs> yeah, just south, just south of town, like ten miles or twenty miles. Somebody, uh, the like tornadoes touched down and stuff, right? Yeah, I yeah, think that's yeah, where we, yeah. we were around there. Yeah, we got lucky. <laughs> you were in the heart of it. <laughs> and I'm in the campground. Uh, it's oh great. I'm I'm from Florida here. Tornadoes and trailer parks don't mix, and I'm in a tent going. Uh, well, yeah, I came all the way up here to Oshkosh for this. Huh? This is how it ends. <laughs> here. Yeah. Gotta have another beer. I did. Don't you worry. I did. I was well stuck on the gym beam forehand. Storm coming my way. Uh, I know what to do. I hurricane parties. <laughs> we got them in spades here. <laughs> We're no rookies to those. No, you're not. Uh, did you have a question, Sean, for um, landing? Well, for landing, I I, I do like that. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of just really intrigued about. The, the history of aviation and, and how Eric seems to be just really, you know, very much in tune with the spirit of aviation, the history of aviation. And so along that line, Eric, if you could fly with anyone who has existed throughout time, who would you fly with? Oh, my goodness. Um, that's a good one. I mean, uh, <laughs> I sort of feel like this is the same question, that, say, very similar to the question of when my, my wife asked me, uh so uh if you could have any airplane which one would it be and it's like oh can i have seven <laughs> uh, they all have a purpose right this is all have a yeah oh totally it's like a surfboard you can't have one uh, surfboard uh -huh. you have to uh -huh. have like one for the big waves and the small waves and the burger waves and, like you know the long board just to take the kids out in and the paddleboard like you gotta have one of each right oh, um, so so i guess um that's that's a re really really fair questions and that i haven't thought of and i think the answer would probably have to be like i have to go through the ages and pick my seven or whatever you know i mean like the rights i'm totally infatuated with because um you know not only do they just figure out how to fly but like they figured out that they're like kind of the first ones to figure out how do you control an airplane in a modern sense um that made flight really possible right um and then uh, and i actually just learned that kitty i think it's kitty hawk aviation or kitty hawk flyers or something like that um, you can actually fly, they, they let people fly the 1902 glider replica that they've met, oh, like good. on, in this, in the hills out there, like in the dunes, wow. like you can actually fly this 1902 kite, which That's just serious. got added to my bucket list. Um, uh, shoot, like a week ago or something like that, me and RJ Gritter were bantering back and forth and somebody chimed in on Instagram. They're like, you can actually do this. Oh my gosh. Um, and then, um, 
so I think the, the, the Wright brothers would be really incredible to talk to um, and sort of glean a little bit of that aviation approach from it. Cause everybody has like a little bit uh, different approach um, to flying. And so like, you know, like to be, which is why I wanted to get back into air show flying to kind of give my kids that, that smattering of experience that I had, you know? Um, and then I think all the, all the greats, I mean, I, uh, um, I think Lincoln Beach, Beachy would have been really phenomenal. I mean, he was sort of like the first real aerobatic pilot, um, first widely known one for sure. But he, he like, you know, flying was in this envelope and post Lincoln Beachy, it was like way bigger than before. Um, so he would have been totally fascinating. Um, I don't, I think I, I don't think I would have wanted to fly with him because he was, you know, back in that age where he was just going for it. We didn't know like, why an airplane spun or how to get out of it. Like he just went for it. Um, which is all obviously like why he died doing it. Um, cause probably he didn't quite understand it. Right. Cause nobody did at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, right. So I don't, I don't think I would have wanted to fly with him, but I would have loved to have beers with him and talk to him about it. Um, or flying a modern airplane <laughs> where I was BSC. Um, and then all the greats, you know, I mean, like one of my favorite stories I ever heard is, uh, uh like Bob Hoover, for example. Um, I mean, shoot, I would have loved to have flying with, uh, Leo Loudensager too, but so, so anyway, so Bob Hoover lost his medical, right? Um, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago or something like that for, and he lost it for like five years just and battling with the FAA over all this stuff. Um, and then when he got it back, he got his medical back and then he had to get his statement of aerobatic competency back so he could fly air shows again. Um, and so Leo Loudensager did his ACE evaluation. And so um, Leo went flying with him to like reinstate his act. So he went flying with him in the strike and they did his routine. It's like, yeah, he signed him off and stopped. But he said it was one of the scariest experiences of his entire life. And Leo was like, you know, he was an airline aviator. And then he was like one of the most badass aviators, like um, pinnacle aviators throughout history. And he, um, he said that, you know, he did the routine and Bob's routine finished with dead stick loop eight point roll, 180 degree turn, come and land, and then come around the corner and taxi into the spot that he departed from. Right. Um, and, um, and Bob, uh, I mean, shoot, he, like his book's amazing. Um, like he, he got to fly one. And if you ask Bob, like anybody that say that, you know, tell him he's the most humble guy ever. It's like anybody say like, Oh my gosh, you're an amazing aviator. He'd be like, no, I just had some incredible opportunities. You know, he would never take, take any of that acclaim um it would always chalk it up to just like a, a matter of circumstance which i'm sure there you know some aspect to but um but you know the in individual particularly somebody like bob hoover that was just so masterful at navigating humanity in so many levels um but uh so anyway so back to the leo bob story so uh so he does this thick loop eight point roll 180 degree turn to land and he's in the strike commander and then on final he puts uh bob hoover says you know this at this point bob's like 80 years old or something like that and you know like probably weighs a, he's like six foot four and weighs 120 pounds probably and he's just like this little crotchety old man and he says leo we got money in the bank and then he put it leo said he put in the biggest slip he'd ever seen in his life and the strike was just like shaking he couldn't read the instrument panels you know strikes i'm sure weren't really designed to do slips that hard uh, and he's yeah, just like perfect. the airplane's just shaking, probably all this disturbed air coming over the nacelles on the tail and everything. And he'd go into the slip and he'd say, and he'd look over at Leo and say, taking it out, money in the bank, taking it out. And Leo said he was absolutely terrified. So, uh, I mean, I think, 
I think, you know, although every time you fly with somebody, it's not always that extreme, but everybody you fly with, I mean, even I've had students that I learned a ton from just because they had instructor, they might've only had, you know, five hours of flight time, but they had some instructor that gave them some little morsel of knowledge. Um, and, um, so yeah, you learn so much from everybody, but particularly people with such an eclectic, uh, background, um, yeah, there's just there's there's so many little nuggets in aviation and so many different different factors. I mean, we have this one one friend, uh, Billy Janice, who's this kid who came to air shows. I remember him just being a little kid when uh, when we go into all the air shows. Now it's like, you know, 10, 15 years later or whatever. And he's, he's this man and he's flying. I can't remember what the name of the airplane is, but it looks like a big, giant four engine DC three um, that he's flying around in Alaska right now. Um, and so I've only heard like just skim the surface of the stories that he's heard. But, you know, even just flying with somebody like that would have like just this breadth of experience, even though he's only been, uh, you know, kind of a commercial pilot for, I don't know, four or five years now. Um, there's so many different fa facets of aviation and each one of them has their own um, their own little magic to it. Right. No, I agree. I, I, getting to fly with anybody is is fun. I mean, there's, there's always time to get up and, and find something about them, something to talk to. I mean, it, it's a great way to, to get up and, and uh, get to know somebody because essentially you're, you're trapped with them. You yeah, can't really go yeah absolutely. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And like all the, uh, like some of the deeper parts of who we are show up, right? I mean, I, like I've done a bunch of flight instruction in the pits and, you know, you're either sitting in front of them or back. Them. And so if I'm sitting in the front seat, you obviously can't see the person at all. You can feel them through the controls. Um, and then if you're sitting behind them, you can only see just the back of their head. And, um, but there's so much that you can read because you get into these like stress centers where like people, like all like the kind of facade that we all try and hold up of like our composure and whatever we want to project to the world, like all that kind of evaporates when you um, are on a spin for the first time <laughs> and you start to see kind of who people really are. Um, it's this, it becomes this kind of real intimate experience. And it's amazing how much you can tell about what's going on in somebody's brain just by following them through the controls and, um, uh, and hearing like the subtle intonations of their voice. And <laughs> yeah, that's, that is, that is so well said right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I um, remember when I was in a pits, I, um, it was one of our friends and it was my first aerobatic ride. And I was like giggling at first. And then in my face, like just flushed. I'm like, I think we need to land after our first spin. I'm like, like now, <laughs> now your pits is not going to be pretty anymore. <laughs> but it was an experience unlike any other. Uh, hey, there's Mitchie. Hey, come, come look, oh, Natalia. I found Mitchie. Eric, you get to meet uh, Mitchie really quickly from Level Aviation. She's in. We're doing the the uh, hey, Mitchie. in my gym. So they're getting ready to work out out there. Oh. They've got their programming. Look at that. Huh? Is that time to do it? Oh, flashing the guns. Ah, I see you, Eric. <laughs> yep, they work harder than uh, than anybody else. I tell you what, they drag over. Uh, I, probably half the uh, the family works over there, and they just drag them over after after uh, a day's work, whether they want to or not. And they're here getting it done. Damn. Awesome. I, I know it. That, that's the fountain of youth right there, working out. Yeah, it really is. It it, it one hundred percent is. I mean, you gotta you gotta keep moving. If you stop moving. That is a uh, the kiss of death right there. Absolutely. Yeah, the older I get, the more I find that it's like if I don't work out, I'm just like sore and achy all over um, and just like don't want to move. But if I wake up every morning and like go out and do something active, I feel like, yeah, you might be muscle sore, but like overall you feel good, like the spine yeah. and everything feels aligned. Your hormones feel balanced. And, yeah. 
discipline, everything is like everything. The best thing for you. I love it. Fitness. Absolutely. You have just been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for so many thoughtful answers. Uh, it, it's been great to sit down. I've been looking forward to it. I, so many people have told me, you got to sit down with Eric. You got to chat with him. And, and now I know why. I, I know why Natalia was so insistent of, of uh, me coming into this interview and, and just getting to enjoy some of your energy. So I really thank you for bringing that to us. Thank absolutely. You. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. And, and I want to do a quick sponsor plug for Method 7 um, because they're just yeah incredible people good dear friends and and uh and it all happened kind of i was uh ended up wearing their sunglasses long before i met the guy um just we're having coffee with them like once a month because they're getting into aviation or once a a couple times a year actually um and he gave me their first aviation lenses i'm like oh yeah these are pretty good but you know this that the other thing and um and it was only years later that that i was going to do all this comedy act flying i was like telling him about he's like can we do some sort of promotional thing with it? Like, Oh dude, let's definitely do it. And, um, but they're just like phenomenal people and really like world-class sunglasses. They're, 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 they're the first company I think to bring like a real science to, um, designing lenses that are specifically for like filtering out UVA, UVB, protecting your eyes, but also uh, allowing the maximum amount of light to, uh, come through. So your peripheral vision works, not blocking all the blue light because peripheral vision. And I just like, bringing science to it um so they're just like kind of people who care and they make a fantastic product so anyways love the mess seven people too sunglasses like that i mean you go through a complete fitting pupillar distance and i mean it's just a really you're right science they are 100 percent about the science of sunglasses yeah absolutely yeah they're fantastic oh before you go wasn't there a contest going on or is that done oh yeah so no we just we just they just announced the winner so yeah so they oh, uh, they had a contest oh, yeah. to uh, to ride with me just sort of a raffle uh so i just connected with the guy um and he's going to be um uh, coming out to reno airways and we're giving a couple of vip <laughs> tickets winner? for the event taking fly in and all that sort of stuff yeah yeah this really really wonderful guy uh got it he's not a pilot he's just uh, actually oshkosh local he brought his family to the air show there um, and so him and his dad awesome. are going to do like a father son trip out to Reno for, for the air races for the first time. And he's always kind of wanted to get into aviation and he's just like beyond stoked. So, so yeah, so it'll work out great. What better way to do that than with Eric Tucker? I mean, a great Eric Ooh. Tucker experience is going to kick that off. No doubt. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank, you, thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, love what you guys are doing and uh pleasure to meet you, Sean. And we'll, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others or post about it on social media.